Once again, you're listening to the Hope and Hard Pills podcast, where we're talking about practical insight for racial justice and social change. I'm your host, as always, Andre Henry. And today we are joined with a favorite for our team. And I know for many of our listeners, many of you who are on our email list, you've heard me mention the end of policing. You've seen me post it on Instagram over and over and over and over again, saying, read this book, read this book, read this book. Alex Vitali is with us this morning, and we're going to talk to him about his work and his message um, about the end of policing. So, um, Alex, thank you so much for being on the show today. Uh, you bet, Andre. For people who are not familiar with, with your work and not familiar with the end of policing, could you just tell us a little bit about the book? What made you decide, okay, I need to put all this information together. I need people to know this this information. And what were you hoping people would walk away from that text with? I've been working on policing issues in a variety of capacities for 30 years now. Mm. And I really have come to believe that police reform is not only not possible, it's just a giant program of distraction to mm. try to uh, re-legitimate an institution whose core function is to produce injustice. Mm. And so because I've worked on policing for so long as a scholar and as a public policy advocate, uh, I was able to kind of get that overview from 30,000 feet mm-hmm. and to think about not only the ways in which policing fails us, but also what we could do instead. Yes. And part of the motivation was witnessing for the last 30 years these episodic uprisings in response to Rodney King, Amadou Diallo, et cetera, that were very powerful, but often ended up resulting in the same kind of discourse about, well, can we fix the training and hire a few black police officers? And I just knew that that wasn't going to work. That wasn't going to fix anything. And I thought, well, there's a, there's a certain number of people who are having serious conversations about prison abolition. Yes. But very few people talking concretely about police abolition. When, when mm-hmm. I started this project, which was before Ferguson, before Eric mm-hmm. Garner, you know, about seven years ago now. And wow. I thought, let me lay out a kind of comprehensive take on this in the in a form that could be used as a kind of guidebook not just for academics but but for the movement yes and i i just want to say immediately when you say a guidebook for the movement that's how i felt as an activist on the ground you know i've Lovely. i've been i've been on the ground since maybe 2015 2014 somewhere around there and when I came across the end of policing, 
I felt like this is the kind of book that we need to help us create good strategy. Like it goes into the theory part of praxis for us, you know, so uh, thank you again for that. <laughs> You're most welcome. <laughs> Music to any author's ears. Yeah. So, so thank you for that. And and for those of you listening, again, I am plugging the book after the first question. Get it? Okay. So this was something that was really helpful for me that you just said. I think I read that in the first chapter where you said the police are an institution that I can't remember exactly how you said it, but it's like they create injustice or they uphold injustice or that's what the institution is for. Could you say just a tad bit more about that? Because this is so new and outlandish for some people, I think. Like, just like you said, like there's a bad apples common sense that a lot of us have. I think a lot of our listeners are past thinking that it's a few bad apples, but it's still another thing to get to the point where you're saying that this, this institution is made to uphold injustice and it's not like we're on like a radio show of some guy like sitting in the woods somewhere like the whole thing is, you know, you don't you don't sound like a conspiracy theorist. Sharpening sticks or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, like you've been doing this work for a long time. You've seen, you know, from an expert's perspective, someone who's been looking at this for decades that it's not able to be reformed. So could you just say a little bit more about the police are an institution that uphold injustice by design. What do you mean by that? So we're usually mired in this kind of liberal myth about policing that says that the police exist to neutrally enforce the rule of law in a way that will benefit everyone, that will create social cohesion, and that we need this law enforcement function to have mm. a stable society. Yes. And that so that police get created, uh, the myth usually goes in, in 1829 in London, the London Metropolitan Police, mm-hmm. who are there to establish, you know, more social cohesion uh, through policing by consent. Mm-hmm. But what that liberal myth leaves out is the fact that these legal systems do not benefit everyone equally. Right. There's a, there's a famous 19th century saying that the law in its majesty forbids both the rich and the poor from sleeping under bridges, stealing bread, mm. and begging in the streets. Mm-hmm. But, but of course, the rich don't need to do these things. Only poor people do. And the, the burden wow. of the law falls disproportionately on those who are on the losing end of the dominant systems of economic and political exploitation. Yeah. And when we look more carefully at the actual creation of policing in its modern form, it emerges specifically and concretely out of the dominant forms of economic and political exploitation in the period about 200 years ago. Mm. And those dominant forms are colonialism, slavery, Mm. and mass industrialization. So even the London Metropolitan Police, when we look more carefully, we see that the creator of them, Sir Robert Peel, Robert, Bob, the Bobbies, uh-huh, uh-huh. Right, he's home secretary, creates the London Metropolitan Police, but where did he get the idea from? Mm. Well, he had been in charge of the English 
occupation, colonial occupation of Ireland. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And he develops the Irish Peace Preservation Force to manage uprisings against British colonialism. Wow. And he takes that and he molds it into this London Metropolitan Police whose primary task is to manage the massive influx of agricultural workers who've been displaced from the countryside by the enclosure movements, by capitalist property relations, and to craft them into a stable and compliant industrial working class. Mm. Wow, yes. And I, I appreciate you um, unpacking that for for us. And one of the things that I found most compelling, I think it's at the, near the end of chapter one, is you said that that's why you say that the answer to, you know, what we're calling crime or the things that we're having the police manage is a robust democracy. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, if we look at what police do today, right, they're not managing slavery and colonialism in that 19th century <laughs> sense. I mean, we barely have industrialization. What they're managing are the consequences of liberal, sort of neoliberal austerity. And by mm -hmm. that, I mean, they are enforcing a system of social order that's rooted in deep systems of global exploitation. So what's mm -hmm. happened is, is that our elected officials over the last 40, 50 years have embraced a kind of free market worldview mm -hmm. backed up by this conscious subsidizing of the richest economic actors in hopes that they'll become so wealthy that some of that wealth will trickle down to the rest of us. Mm. But but that's not what's happened, right? It's created a class of billionaires yes. and declining standards of living for everyone else. It's produced mass homelessness, mm. mass untreated mental health and substance abuse problems, failed schools, mass involvement in black market activity like drugs and sex work and stolen goods, and then policing is what's used to manage those symptoms of a failed economic system. Because mm. that's what police really do. If you, if you ride around in the back of police cars, like I have for many years, mm -hmm. they are chasing homeless people and chasing unemployed kids off street corners and going on mental health crisis calls and, and chasing kids around school corridors, you know? And none of that solves any of those problems right just right. manages it it just moves people around it just tries to keep a lid on things which is what policing has always done whether it's yeah. pre to prevent slave uprisings to fight against anti-colonial movements to mm. suppress uh, workers movements strikes formation of unions that has always been the history of policing yeah i've really been struggling with this alex because i i'm on the same page as you even just yesterday, I'm I'm driving to school. I'm in a music production program right now in Inglewood, and I'm driving to school. No, I was driving to a classmate's home after after our classes because, you know, the the school closes at five, and we still want to keep making music. So we're like, all right, we're going to Gabe's house, right? This one police officer pulls up behind me on a motorcycle, and all of a sudden. I've got the music turned down now. There are times when I'll see a police officer. On, you you on, didn't exactly feel safer, did you? No, exactly. And <laughs> and there are often times when I see a police officer on the road, I will pull off onto a side street and just wait, you know? 
and 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 resume my trip. And I, I do that often, like because I just don't feel safe. And here's where I get stuck <laughs> is in the meantime, like between point A and point B, what does the transition period away from policing look like to you? Right. So, and this is super important because I think there's been a lot of kind of intentional misrepresentation of what folks are talking about yes. by the kind of blue lives matter, defend mm-hmm. the blue crowd. That's like, Oh, they want to just create the purge, right? They just want total <laughs> chaos and anarchy, right? Which of course, exactly the opposite is the case. This is a movement for public safety. Yes led primarily by people who have experienced a profound lack of safety in their lives from the police, including from the police. So, so what do we do? This is, this is about a process, Mm -hmm. a process of creation. Yes. Of looking at the problems our society faces in both the long-term and the short-term. So long-term we need to address the systems of racialized economic exploitation at the center of American society. Mm -hmm. And while we work on that big picture undertaking, we also need to try to put in place new logics of care and compassion rather Mm. than control and coercion. Yes. To build solidarity among people instead of atomizing people in a a race of endless competition for who can have, you know, the most yachts. Yes. Yes. And the biggest summer houses. And, and it's just this culture of greed that tears our society apart. So that means concretely that we have to quit using our limited political resources Mm. to fight for reforms that are never going to give us what we want. Yes. To quit thinking that body cameras and implicit bias training are going to save our lives, are going to heal our communities, Mm -hmm. are going to create real safety for us, are going to lead us to a better world. And instead, stay laser focused on demanding the concrete things that will, in the short run, as well as the long run, make Mm -hmm. us safer and healthier. So that means saying, look, our schools don't need more people with guns. Yes, They need counselors and teachers aides and wraparound services for young people in crisis and family supports and high quality after school programs. But when we say we have kids in crisis in our school, we're told, okay, here's some school police. And then when they beat our kids up, they say, oh, well, don't worry, we'll give them some more training. And here's another million dollars for their budget. Wow. Right. It's about saying, why can't we have high quality mental health and substance abuse services in our own community, delivered Mm -hmm. by people from our own community Mm -hmm. that's culturally appropriate, that's about building people up, not locking people away. Yeah. So. The message is that now is the time to ask for what we really want yes. instead of self-censoring ourselves by having to couch our demands in terms that we think will be accepted by the people who do not have our best interests at heart. Right. And if right. those people won't give us the basic necessities of life that we're demanding, then they got to go. 
Mm. Yes. And that's a little bit of what we're seeing, you know. We're seeing some replacing of the old guard mm-hmm. by a new generation of leaders like Corey Bush and St. Louis and, and mm-hmm. AOC in New York City who are like, enough of this tinkering around the edges with feel-good reforms and symbolic politics. We want real power to yes. make real changes. Yes, yes. And and some of that, it sounds like we could do ourselves. You know, like there when we think about creating the solutions to some of these root problems, it sounds like... I mean, some of them, obviously, we need new legislation and and things like that. But it sounds like there might be ways for people in their communities through collective action to organize some of these alternative systems, you know? Absolutely. I mean, mutual aid, prefigurative politics are essential here. Mm -hmm. We need to ask questions about what we can do as neighbors yeah. To make our community safer without yeah. bringing in people with guns. Yeah. Is, is, is really my only option to call 911 when I'm having a beef with someone? Mm. Can I not, you know, call them directly or involve some neighbors or family, you know? So there's a lot of different examples of efforts to do this. Uh, Mariam Kaba's book is very mm. good on uh, laying out what some of these examples look like. This is mm-hmm. uh, under the rubric of the kind of transformative justice movement. Yes, yes. And also, you know, what do we, how can we be better to each other within our own movements? Yes, yes. Best practices, you know, because people are hurting. And yeah. sometimes that shows itself as disruptive or harmful or hurtful behavior within our movement. Yes. And we need to we need to prefigure what we want for the bigger society by developing skills and tactics and institutional structures within our own movements to help resolve these questions without canceling people. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, what has your work looked like since uh, publishing the book? I'm, I know that I've seen you speaking at, you know, DSA Atlanta or, you know, different things like that. And I'm Wondering how have people been responding to, I I know like you're not the only person talking about this, but I'm wondering what you're seeing as you talk to people around the country about the end of policing. So I, I consider myself part of of a movement. I'm in Mm -hmm. regular dialogue with, with people like Miriam and Derek Mm -hmm. Purnell and Gio Marr has a new book on Mm -hmm. uh, police abolition and I work closely with the movement for black lives and, mm-hmm. and other uh, formations around the country who are doing this work. Yep. So I, um, I have a kind of policy shop called the policing and social justice project. And I spend most of my time, not in the classroom, which mm-hmm. I miss somewhat, but uh, doing events, consulting with elected officials, community-based groups, candidates running for office mm-hmm. uh, about, how to get out of this mess, yeah. you know, what, concretely, you know, how can we get the police out of traffic enforcement? How can we get the police out of the sex work business? How can we get mm-hmm. them out of the drug business? What would it look like to do that? What are the kinds of programmatic interventions that we need to replace them with? Uh, yeah. So uh, so that's what I do all day is, is do events. And then, I, you know, uh, things like this, trying to talk to the public to give them a feel for what 
what a new path forward might look like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how have people been, res- how does the public you feel like been responding to that message? Well, we went through a quarter of a million copies of the book last year. Congratulations. <laughs> so there seems to be some appetite for these ideas. I mean, yeah. much to the shock of everyone involved. <laughs> you know, like I said, I, 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 I developed this thing before Ferguson happened. I mean, right. I did not in any way, shape or form imagine the kind of response that has happened. So, I mean, I receive invitations all day, every day to do mm. things. So there's obviously a huge appetite and I try to pack as many things in in a day as I can. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. So of course there, there are haters, right? That there are back the blue types. I actually don't hear that much from them. The bigger problem is the liberal reformers in Mm. academia, in the public uh, policy world who are, committed to a police-centered worldview, yes. even as they know from firsthand experience that policing doesn't work, yeah. they get their, their grants from policing, from the Department of Justice. They mm. work in departments where the students want to go into policing, where they have research right. arrangements with police. They are captured by the criminal legal system. They are not mm. independent scholars. Yes. Right. They are an adjunct to the prison industrial policing complex. Wow. And so those folks, they deeply dislike this work because mm. it is threatening their whole, not only their worldview, but their paycheck. That's such a profound statement, I feel, because I feel like especially right now, we you know, we just lived through four years of, you know, I mean, the the Trump presidency was a scary time. But then, you know, you watch the 2020 election season, and it's almost like people welcomed this demo, this democratic controlled government as though kind of like, okay, now, now everything's going to change. Like, this is the this is the moment at the end of Shrek where Fiona turns back into a human being, except <laughs> she doesn't, you know, or where Pride Rock, you know, grows vegetation again, right? And we don't like we still have so much that we kind of need, not kind of, we need to be confronting right now. And I think a lot of people are asking, like, how is it that we can switch out? Um, entirely from a Republican-controlled government who we were all saying was the problem at the time and have a completely Democrat-controlled government right now and still be in pretty much the same situation that we were in. Yeah, police are still killing three people a day. Mm -hmm. They're still making millions of totally pointless, unjust arrests for things like marijuana and prostitution and being homeless and, you know, being too loud in school and disruptive. And right. So part of the problem here, right, is that policing is really a local matter in the United States. We don't have a national police force that's 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 under the authority of a national government. Mm -hmm. So Washington is somewhat irrelevant. This is a battle that has to be waged city by city. Yes. And so what you see is that people are waging the battle. 
Mm-hmm. I was on a call yesterday with folks in Seattle and Dallas and Austin and Boston and New York recounting, here's what we're doing, trying to cut back the police budget, put a lid on overtime, develop alternatives to the narcotics squad, you know, cancel mm-hmm. uh, the war on drugs. So this work is happening, yep. but it's happening city by city, which means in part, it doesn't get generally a lot of national news coverage. Yeah. It was, you know, the George Floyd protests, because they were so intense, militant and widespread, had to be covered. Yeah. But 45 people showing up to a budget hearing in Northampton, Massachusetts, is not considered newsworthy. Right. But that is happening in hundreds of cities across the country, and it's having an impact on these budgets. Yeah. Does the fact that that work is happening every day make you hopeful? Does it, is it, does that keep you going? What does keep you going? That's what, that's what I want to know to do this work. Optimism of the will. Yeah. So I feel like there is a robust movement, you know, even before George Floyd, there was, there was a movement out there. I mean, I was traveling, uh, I was doing 25 trips a year. Mm. I was, you know, constantly in dialogue with folks. We were having national conversations. Yeah. We weren't imagining that the George Floyd thing was going to happen, though we should mm-hmm. have had that in the back of our mind because because we know the police are going to continue to do horrible things. Right. Uh, so the movement exploded onto the front pages, onto television in a way that outstripped the kind of institutional infrastructure of the movement. Yeah. And then... When police weren't abolished the next day, people were like, oh, the movement failed. <laughs> well, like, well we, no one here thought we were going to do that. <laughs> we, we're trying to build grassroots movements neighborhood by neighborhood, city yes. by city. Yes. And that work is continuing. Yeah. And every day, more people who used to think that body cameras and community policing were the solution, don't believe that anymore. Yeah. They want police out of their schools, out of the mental health business, out of the sex work business. And so mm-hmm. the the logic, the underlying argument that we're trying to make, I think, is expanding. It's winning more people over, despite the efforts of, you know, centrist and right-wing media pundits to to constantly say defund the police doesn't work and mm-hmm. policing is the best thing we ever saw. And, you know, I don't think they have a winning argument. They're just desperate to try to hold the line and cozy up to people in power. Mm. I know that we are, we're running out of time. So I want to ask you, how can people get involved? People who are listening to this and they you know, they say, okay, this is compelling for me. I want to be directly involved, you know, in some way in, you know, this new vision for public safety, you know, how can they follow your work? Are there organizations that you say you, you trust and you would recommend them following? Yeah. Where, where can they start? Yeah. So there is local organizing happening Mm -hmm. all over the place and people can plug into it. You know, I was saying before, I'm going to be in LA County in a few weeks to support the cancel the contract campaign in Palmdale and Lancaster, where they want to get rid of 
the L.A. County Sheriff's Department that's providing law enforcement for them and replace Mm. it with a whole new vision about public safety. And so people need to plug into movements like that. There's a website called defundpolice.org and on it is a map with dots and you can click on those dots and find out who's doing this work where you are in New Orleans, in Miami, in Boise, Idaho, in St. Paul, Minnesota, in Tucson, Arizona, right? This thing is happening all over the place and you just need to plug into it. Yeah, wonderful. Alex, thanks so much for being with us again. um, Again, everyone listening, the name of the book is The End of Policing by Alex Vitale. Please look it up, especially if you if there's a local bookstore that might be might, might be carrying it. Well, and you can order it directly from the publisher versobooks.com and mm-hmm. avoid the the Amazon middleman. <laughs> yes, yes, love Verso Books by the way. Um, lots of lots of good stuff there. So yeah, thank you so much for joining us again. Uh, we look forward to continuing to follow your work and to support your work. Hopefully, we'll have you on the show again sometime. Thanks, Andre. so much for listening today if you like what you heard and you haven't already please subscribe on your favorite podcatcher also leaving a rating and review on apple podcasts helps us get into more ears and minds you can find all the links in the show notes for today's guest as well as andre's newsletter patreon and book you can connect with andre on facebook instagram and twitter at the andre henry that's all for this episode of the hope and hard pills podcast we'll see you next time